This is According to Callus, and that's me. This is going to be the Magdeburg Monday, only it's a Tuesday. And the reason why it's on a Tuesday is last night I was the moderator of the Think On It forum having to do with critical race theory in schools, helpful or hurtful. Both parts of that will be posted tomorrow in about hour-long chunks. Um, By Thursday, I'll have a little bit of time to recoup, put my thoughts together, and I'll return for my regular show where I kind of give a breakdown and kind of summary analysis of what I took away from it. And I hope that you'll return to listen to that. But I know that the very good, fair, clean conversation that took place um, was in many ways enlightening. And I would encourage you very much to take time, regardless of what you think of me or even think of the McKinney First Pack, listen to it. Have an open heart, an open mind, and listen. There were some uh, interesting things said and discussed. And I will also note that we had a couple of people of note in the audience, at least for the first hour. Uh, And I'll mention that when we get there on Thursday. Again, uh, that is the brief wrap up of why there's a day long delay on this. And on with the show, as they say. So, again, the Magdeburg Confession was from, I'm sorry, the 13th of April. In 1550 A.D. Now I apologize. Uh, my contacts are a little out of date apparently. And I'm having challenges reading at certain distances. Which is also the same problem I experienced last night. And I had less than stellar uh, lighting over my uh, pages I was reading from. In any case. So. The confession if you will. Uh, there's a forward. Which I mentioned. And. The uh, author is talking about the idea that he first discovered the Magdeburg Confession. You know what? Give me one moment. I'll be right back. My apologies. All right. Had to adjust some uh, technical things here. So I first discovered the Magdeburg Confession while researching a book to write on a little known tool to restrain tyranny called the Lesser Magistrate Doctrine. The doctrine can be traced back many centuries and supplies biblical perspectives by which men may justly override those in positions of higher authority to quell an abuse of power. I had read many references to the Magdeburg Confession in my studies and therefore wanted to read it in its own in its entirety and thus began the journey to obtain a complete copy of the Confession in English. I'm going to fast forward here just a moment. And I want to also say that the author of this forward is Matthew Truella. And if you don't know who that is, he's an interesting guy. And I strongly recommend you take five minutes to go look up his history. But he is uh, quite the uh, activist in his own right. So... They, uh, he got a call from a guy who was a librarian at the Concordia University and said that uh, he was going to try and find a complete copy. And after that, he found that there is no English translation currently in existence. But it had been translated into German, but never English. 
and it was always and it was in its original Latin. So most of the or I should say almost all of the theological writings back then were written in Latin and it was translated into German, of course, because that's where it took place and that's where it needs to be. Um, so they were able to get an original Latin from the Bavarian State Library. And from that, they were able to get a direct translation with uh, the assistance and services of Dr. Matthew Colvin. So that's how we got the English version. Um, The reason why this is a historical work of great importance is because of the Lesser Magistrate doctrine that I have talked about. And it is to be noted that they wrote it just prior to the 13th month, 13-month siege by Emperor Charles V. That'd be the Holy Roman Empire, if you're not aware. And they were trying to explain why they don't need to obey. And lesser authorities have the right and obligation to actively resist and oppose a superior authority. And they don't have to obey either, right? So they also note that Martin Luther himself was rescued by death, or from death, excuse me, by the interposition of a lesser magistrate who defied the order of his superior. And this was Prince Frederick the Wise, who was an elector of Saxony, thus the lesser magistrate. And his superior, the aforementioned Emperor Charles V, in conjunction with Pope Leo X, had ordered Luther to attend an ecclesiastical convention in Worms, Germany, in the spring of 19... I'm sorry, 1521. Um, Frederick's efforts, Luther was guaranteed safe conduct... I'm sorry, conduct so that he could travel and answer charges or renounce or reaffirm his theological views. So he went there. Uh, But when he failed to renounce those beliefs, uh, they wanted him apprehended. Charles V ordered that, and Prince Frederick did not. He basically feigned an abduction and hid, hid him and protected him. So that is one of the ideas behind this. this is where it comes from. Were they in the right when they did this, and if so, why? Okay. 30 years later, things are going on, and Charles V also imposed the Augsburg Interim back on May 15th of 1548. And this law was an attempt to force Protestants back under the traditional Roman Catholic beliefs. But the people in Magdeburg refused to submit, and that's how we get where we're at. And the true opinion that has always been hidden here to hitherto, I think I'm hitherto, is the lesser magistrate doctrine. Okay, so now I've read a whole bunch of stuff. Long story short, they spent a lot of time going through biblical studies to prove out why this is an appropriate doctrine, and they wrote it in the form of a confession. There are the three parts. The first part is to assure the lesser magistrates of their day of the confessor's orthodoxy and that they stood with Luther. 
Um, so they lay out their Lutheran theology. And the third part is a warning and exhortation to all those who would take actions against them, whether directly or through complicity. There's an interesting term there, don't you think, in our modern world? As well as those who would stand by and do nothing to help them. The second part of the confession, however, lies out the lesser magistrate doctrine. This section begins with an appeal to Charles V. And remove those that he has surrounded himself to give him counsel. And they make it clear to Charles the only reason for this impasse is due to his attack upon their Christian faith. If only, well, again, we're just going to stick with the topic here. Uh, they assure Charles that they are his best citizens. They write, We give from our churches to the, the greatest possible number of men who, if they are able to enjoy their own religion through you, will declare their obedience towards you in all owed and upright duties, and loyalty without hypocrisy, perhaps more than those whom you say are obedient to you. It's pretty straightforward. They're saying, just let us have this one thing, and we'll, we'll be good citizens. The pastors of uh, Magdenburg state, all magistrates possess delegated authority from God. Therefore, the lesser magistrates have the lawful authority to oppose the superior magistrate turned tyrant when he makes laws contrary to the law and word of God. They did not view unjust or immoral law and edicts of a higher magistrate to be an excuse for or for lesser magistrates not to protect the citizens of their jurisdiction. Rather, they viewed resistance to in unjust or an immoral law and edicts by the higher magistrate as the duty of the lesser magistrate to protect the citizens of their jurisdiction. And in their confession, they carefully define the four levels or degrees of tyranny that a superior magistrate may put upon and the legitimate and proper response of those lesser magistrates to each of them. There is an order to their resistance and their position is well thought out, adhered to standards and applied, or I'm sorry, appealed to the immutable truth. So these Lutheran guys spent some time based their writing upon uh, Lutheran doctrine and greatly impacted the guys that followed them, including none other than John Knox. So... We're going to pause now and we're going to jump forward to, uh, well, again, this was written on St. Crispin's Day, which if you don't know what that is, do yourself a favor, look it up, by Pastor Matt Truella in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. Now we're going to get on to the introduction. So I've uh, used roughly a third of my podcast uh, to, to just kind of lay out why we have what we have and what happened to delay it. To today. So I think I'll just have enough time to get through the introduction, which is also written by Mr. George Grant, not Pastor Matt Truella. So the introduction, and we're going to just kind of hit some highlights here, if you will. One of the most distinctive features of the biblical worldview is the principle of covenant or federalism. In Christian theological parlance, the covenant is the personal binding structural relation 
ship among the persons of the triune Godhead and his people. This sort of federalism is thus the sovereignty, sovereignly initiated divine human, human to divine, and human to human social structure. Essentially what that means is the covenant becomes the means by which we approach, deal with, and know God as well as one another. It is the pattern of our relationship and our relationships, our community and our communities. In this very real sense, it is the unified field theory of biblical theology. That's pretty strong there, right? So, let me uh, continue on for the second paragraph. As opposed to the myriad of non-Christian, contract-initiated, or compact-based social relationships, which are in invariable, impersonal, structural, ideological, whether they be tribal, linguistic, or political, a covenantal or federal society is organic and relational, personal and familial, never, never, I'm sorry, neither wholly individual or exclusively corporatistic. I'm going to pause just a second there, and I'll return. All right, I apologize for that. Apparently, that is now two interruptions in a single recording, which is a rare problem indeed. So I left off with Dr. George Grant talking about um, the introduction of this Bogdanberg Confessions, and he is explaining the covenantal form that this takes, a federal view if you prefer, and it starts with a comprehensive covenantal or federal view reinforces the notion that every life is sacred and no person is expendable, and that everyone in a society is responsible to someone for someone. And a practical outworking of such a profound caveat to the normal state of human affairs in this poor fallen world is a little more than astonishing. Or a little, is more than a little astonishing. Wow. Okay. The covenantal social structure, for instance, produces spheres of sovereignty where divisions of responsibility, authority, and labor reinforced with suitable checks and balances are put into place. Now, if you'll forgive my hammering all those words together. Basically, what he's just said is the covenantal social structure creates levels of authority and checks and balances. Now, we may have heard of something like this before. So, let's, let's continue. Thus, federalism produces a separation of powers by means of the rule of law rather than the imposition of arbitrary justice from ideological or impersonal forces. It also provides for such essential principles of freedom and magistrate interpositionalism as well as popular representation and the consent of governed. So, again, this underlies the entirety of Locke's theory of government, does it not? This may become more relevant here in the next episode or two, so just pay attention if you will. All this from this great innovation among men and nations, the ideal of a federal covenant. Here we go. Indeed, this was the essential philosophical and structural framework within the American Founding Fathers 
within which the American Founding Fathers constructed their innovative scheme of national checks and balances, separation of powers, and mixed government. Hmm. The covenantal development of a state confederation or federalism allowed for distinctive individual communities to join together for the greater good without losing their essential distinctiveness and individuality. Instead of the states becoming part of a larger amorphous union, under federalism they were able to unite in a symbolic fashion so that the sum of their parts may be greater than that of a whole. Wow. In case that doesn't make sense, basically this theory through Locke translates into what our form of government was supposed to have been, not what it is now, but how it was originally intended, and explains why the importance of states need to be reinforced, essentially. That's my interpretation, of course. But the underlying issue is the states created a higher power and they also created lower powers because they are, in fact, the highest power under the control of the Constitution, if you will, being that the constitutional... um, decree is that it is the highest law of the land. Interesting. Delegated power, separated power, checks and balances, and allowing for distinctive and individual states without causing problems with others. Okay. As American patriots imagined it, a federal relationship would be the kind of confession of first principles or covenant that will allow the states to bind themselves together substantially without entirely subsuing their sundry ideas and identities. Interesting. So basically right here, we have learned that when they created our government, they were basing it upon the tenets of this and the idea of spheres of authority, which were very common and well-known at that time. And we have largely Ignored that. Imagine that. Um, the founders thus expressly and explicitly reject the idea of a pure democracy, just as surely as a totalitarian, wow, monarchy, because, as James Madison declared, democracies have ever been the spectacles of turbulence and contention, have ever been found incompatible with personal security or the rights of property, and have in a general been as short as the, in their lives as they have been violent in their deaths. So those of you out there who contend that a pure democracy is ideal, consider that. Those of you who think that one power to rule them all is the solution, think on that. <clears throat> but I've digressed. Federalism balances the vertical and horizontal aspects of covenant. Vertically, Americans are people under the rule of common law. Horizontally, though, Americans are as differentiated into a number of distinctive communities, a.k.a. the sovereign states, to protect, the possible intru- protect from the possible intrusions of the national government. You know, well, I'm sorry. We're going to go on to the educator Peter Jewell, I'm going to say it's J-E-H-L-E, 
Jewell is what it sounds like. He's argued the nature of federalism is seen in the balanced structure of the states and the people throughout the Constitution. Both the national government and the state governments are sovereign in their respective spheres. Our national identity is Americans and our federal identity as state citizens are both represented in Congress, in the Senate and the House. So, again... He's going back to the principles espoused at this period of time, roughly 500 years ago, had a practical impact roughly 250 years ago. And because they've been discarded, because they were not paid heed to, we're in the situation that we're in, though that's not where he's going with it. But he's merely referring back to the original intent and you know, of 250 years ago, then prior or the previous prior intent of 500 years ago, roughly to put in our minds that we need to restore this authority, reactivate this power, because if we do that, we can prevent what is certainly a worse future. Again, my conclusion. <clears throat> but the greatest leap forward in the development of coven, covenantalism covenantalism, excuse me, or federalism came during the medieval age. Now, again, this is about the same time period, right? This remarkable period, most commonly been called the Dark Ages, as if the light of civilization had been unceremoniously snuffed out. It has similarly been dubbed the Middle Ages, as if it were a gaping parenthesis in mankind's long upward march to modernity. Wow. It was, in fact, anything but dark or middling. Perhaps the greatest fault in our modern world is we have limited ourselves to parochialism in time. It is difficult for us to attribute anything but backwardness to the epochs and cultures that do not share our particular goals or aspirations. Now I'm going to put a parenthesis in here, if I may. This is the interesting thing that when you study the French Revolution... You can see they always were driving towards zero year zero or zero year. Basically, everything starts over. Everything that happened in the past is irrelevant. It's only what happens from this point forward. That's why they tried to change the calendar. That's why they changed the measuring system. That's why they tried to change everything possible. They tried to get rid of the church in its entirety and honestly... Uh, They kind of got what they wanted, but just not in the way they expected. And they certainly wanted to destroy the culture that preexisted. And once again, they kind of got what they wanted, but not exactly how they planned. The idea that we can remake society out of whole cloth has been a disaster everywhere it's been tried. Whether it's France, Russia, China, Cuba, Venezuela. At best, you're rolling the dice. But the reality is, is you almost always pull up snake eyes. Parentheses over. So we had the Renaissance, right? The epoch that follows is the Renaissance. It was new and living thing that gave flower of culture, marked by energy and creativity. From the monolithic security of Byzantium in the east to the reckless diversity of the feuding fiefs of the west. It was a glorious quilt and crazy, I'm sorry, glorious and crazy quilt of human fabrics, textures, and hues. Now, to be sure, the medieval world was racked with abject poverty, ravaging plagues, 
and petty wars. <laughs> he says, much like our own day. And it was haunted by superstition, prejudice, and corruption, as it is in the modern era. And it was beset by a consuming ambition, perverse sin, and damnable folly. Again, so like today. Still, it was free from the kind of crippling sophistication, insular ethnocentricity, and the cosmopolitan provincialism that now shackles us. And it is... And so it was able to advance astonishingly. The titanic innovations that medievalism brought forth were legion. The great universities of the world, Oxford, Cambridge, Leipzig, and Mainz. It oversaw the establishment of all the great hospitals of the world, from St. Bartholomew's in Bedlam in London to St. Bernard's in Volksan. It's V. O-I-X-A-N-N-E in Switzerland. And I don't know if that's French-Swiss or German-Swiss, but in either case, I've probably butchered it. Hey. And if we were to look at all the people that came out of that area, you could start with Albrecht Dewar and go all the way back to Aquinas. He's got about two dozen names in here that I know of and I can say, wow, yeah. But of all the great innovations that medievalism wrought, the greatest of all was the application of covenantal feudalism, or I'm sorry, federalism to the whole of society in a life in a system called feudalism. So the end of the Roman era comes about by many people in 476 AD. And I know we're not supposed to use that anymore, but I just won't stop. And then we have to deal with the last of the, I'm sorry, we have to deal with Byzantium still existing, right? The the Eastern Roman Empire, if you will. And when they force Romulus out of Rome or Ravenna, it's gone. And you have your barbarian leaders, but they all recognize the formal and universal overlordship of the Eastern Empire under Emperor Zeno. Interesting, though, they uh, never question the abiding significance of a confederated empire. Kingship merely denoted a leadership of a clan or community. And they looked to the emperor for titles of land and authority. They used the emperor's image on their coins. They adopted Roman law. And I'm going to skip forward a little bit. When Charlemagne, the king of the Franks, was crowned emperor by Pope Leo III in the Church of St. Peter's at Rome on Christmas Day in the year 800, restoring the long-last Western imperial throne. So, Because a tenacious commitment to imperial unity in the West against all the odds was the acceptance of a common faith, common heritage, and common destiny. Christendom, if you will. Now, again, I'm getting a little late. (laughs) The multiple interruptions did not help. But I'm going to basically go right towards the end here. This is... Hmm. So he talks about 
how the, some of the confusion lineage and the different overlapping uh, ruling eras or areas, if you will, and the different vassals and the migration of one group to another and just how it created more havoc and not being able to determine who's really in charge or who's the right sovereign. So it turned into a mess and no one goes and I'm going to go on here. It says no one ever adequately answered the questions of who's legitimate though. Many reformers, tyrants and demagogues tried as the centuries passed, the tangled web of royal intermarriage and the constant jostling of territories and titles and the scandalous ethical degeneration of the church only made matters worse. By the time the Renaissance and the Reformation, the feudal system was hopelessly snarled in conflict and controversy, but it was still in place. It was still functioning. It still provided a semblance of Christian accord. And despite all its arcane quandaries, a pervading commitment to interpersonal honor, universal order, abiding truth continued to fuel the fires of feudalism. Like faith, it was perpetually defeated thing that survived all its conquerors. Feudalism was forever a paradox and a romantic riddle. So, I'm going to go right on, I guess, to the last paragraph or so here. I guess a last page, three paragraphs. So ultimately the font of covenantal ideas from the Magdeburg Confession flowed out into the reforming nations of the West and they were echoed in Calvin's Geneva. They helped shave Knox, Scotland. They were influential in Bowser, Strasbourg, and they laid the foundation of Cranmer's England. And as we have seen, they were central to the vision of the founders of America's great experiment in liberty. But for the same reasons that Magdeburg pioneers had to recover the old medieval practices and principles of covenantal federalism by the means of reformation, we need to pay heed to those ideas today. Western civilization is once again in a very real jeopardy. Freedom is once again threatened. Life liberty and opportunity are once again coming under the shadow of a vested centralized power and the principalities. We should all be grateful that the new translation of this edition of the Magdeburg Confession is now available by looking back at the essential notions upon which our freedoms were built upon. We may yet be motivated and equipped to begin the process of reforming, restoring and recovering. May it be so Lord. And that was George Grant, pastor of the Presbyterian Parish Church in Lententide, Lententide, hmm, 2012, and that's in Franklin, Tennessee. Now, I've used all my time. I will just say I'm going to come back. I'm going to cover each of the three parts. I'm also going to probably give a little bit of the historical setting just because I think it's highly relevant I think that we don't know our history and that's one of the things in my big takeaway from last night's event we don't know our history and it's not that we don't know black history we don't know Latin history we don't know any other history it's we just don't know history period and we do ourselves all a disservice by not knowing our history. The idea of knowing where you've come from so you can know where you're going is real. I think sometimes maybe certain people put too much emphasis on it. 
but to give it no emphasis is equally faulty. Well, ladies and gentlemen, that is the first episode of the Magdenberg Mondays on a Tuesday, no less. And I ask and pray that you return. Like I said, I'm going to probably get at least four more episodes out of this. And I think that if you are patient and you give me time and my voice is 100% next time, it'll be much smoother, much quicker, and I'm going to try to abbreviate the main points. And I just highly encourage you, go buy the book. It, I think it was $12 on Amazon in digital format, or maybe it was $10. I, I don't remember. It was not that expensive. I'm three-quarters of the way through it, and I'll probably finish it tonight or tomorrow. And I highly, highly encourage you to do it, read it, and do yourself one better. Send it to your pastor. Hey, this was According to Callus. I will see you on the other side.